Hello. We are in John chapter 3. We are going to finish John chapter 3. We're starting at verse 22. And I didn't want to go into chapter 4 because I really like chapter 4 of the Samaritan woman. And I want to spend more time on that. So probably only talk for about 10 minutes tonight. And then uh, we'll see where we go from there. Um, we have just finished the dialogue with Nicodemus. We've finished Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus as well as John's narration of that encounter and seeing how Jesus has presented himself as really the savior, the, the new covenant. And now John is going to shift and talk again about John the Baptist. Remember, in the early chapters, we had this kind of presentation about John, but even then there was disclaimers. Well, John, you know, he came before the light, but he wasn't the light. And John the Apostle was real clear to make that distinction. And he's going to make that distinction again, but not with his words, but actually with John the Baptist's words. It's difficult when you have two people named John that you keep talking about in the same uh, passage. But let's read verse 22, and we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. And as we're reading these things, if something stands out to you, a question, you're wondering what this means, or maybe it jumps out to you and you're like, oh, I really like this, or, or this really speaks to me in a certain way, I want you to make note of it because... I'm going to ask you if you have any questions, and I'm, I want to know what things jump out and speak to you as well. And so let's read, starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at the Enon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one who whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains 
on him. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, as we look at these words, there are some powerful things that are presented here and some really helpful things in how we conduct ourselves and live our lives. And we would like to allow these things to permeate our minds and the way we behave. Bless our time here. May it have an effect on what we do after we leave this place. We entrust ourselves and open our hearts and minds to hear your words. Speak life to us. For we ask it in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, first of all, are there any questions that stand out to you in this passage? It's all clear to you guys. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's go through it. And as things come up, maybe I'll uh, stir some questions up. I usually do. or I hope to. First of all, in verse 22, it says, after this, and so we would immediately think this is after the discourse with Nicodemus. Um, in the other Gospels, in Ma- Mark's Gospel, it tells us that John was put into prison before Jesus actually began his ministry, but there isn't really a conflict. What John is really trying to do is use an event opportunity to try and express or further express what is taking place uh, with Jesus. And so the timing of this doesn't necessarily mean that um, this is happening after Jesus has done some miracles and then talked to Nicodemus. Remember, John is trying to be very thematic in how he's presenting these things. And so it's not necessarily chronological, but it could be just representing he's just spoken to Nicodemus about this truth, and he wants to further develop this aspect of the truth. And so Jesus' disciples went out into the Judean countryside, and I love this, where he spent some time with them and baptized. That he spent some time, it was like he hung out with them. Okay, some translations might say he tarried there, you know. How much time did he spend? Just some time. How cool is that? Just spend some time hanging out in the countryside, you know, outside of Jerusalem, Judean countryside, and they just spent some time there with him, and, and they were baptizing. Now, John was also baptizing, and because there was plenty of water, why was he baptizing there? Because there was plenty of water. You know, sometimes it's not really very spiritual, some of the things that happen and why things happen. Sometimes they happen because that's just the practical place for it to happen. Sometimes where ministry will take place is where it can take place. It's not like John prayed, Lord, where should I go and baptize? No, he went where there was water. Why? Because... You need water. And here there was water, so they were baptizing there. And I just, I think that's um, simple, but I, I think it's, 
important that we recognize that. Many times people will like, I don't know where God's leading me. Well, where can you go? You know, I can't go anywhere. What that answer is that, you know. Well, this is an opportunity. Well, then go there. If there's water there, go. And so it's not like, well, I have to know the right place. Well, sometimes where there's an opportunity, that is the right place. And so they went because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. An argument developed. I love that word, argument. I don't know why I like it so much. It's the Italian in me. It's We used to argue. It was debating. But no, it was really arguing developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew. When it talks about a certain Jew, it's usually referring to Jewish leaders. Okay, It's not just talking about some guy. It's talking about those who are in the position of leadership. And throughout the gospel, whenever we see there was a Jewish you know, person mentioned in this way, it's referring to a leader. Over the matter of ceremonial washing... And we talked about this in chapter 2 with the ceremonial water pots that Jesus had them fill to the brim and then turn to wine. We talked about it being symbolic of Jesus changing from the old to the new and this new covenant that was happening. And it was symbolic of that. And the same thing is happening here. That's a contrast between the ceremonial religion and the development of a relationship. And so they were arguing about the ceremonial washing and, and how it was supposed to be done. And so they came to John and say, hey, listen, Rabbi, the man who is with you, which is Jesus, on the other side of Jordan, the one you testified about, look, He's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. They wanted to know what John's assessment of this was. Because here was the fact. Everyone is going and following this guy now. What do you think about that? And so this is giving John, an opportunity to speak into these disciples' lives. They came to him asking him, what do you think about this guy? He's doing this over here. Everyone's going to him. Now, there is responsibility given to anyone who has a position of leadership or the ability to speak into someone's life. There is responsibility to be able to say the right things, to do the right things. And so here come some people arguing. You know, where's everybody going? We had something good going here. And now everybody's leaving. And they're going to follow this guy who was there on the other side. Is that okay with you? And he's pushing us into a... a, a recognition of priorities. Because John was doing something significant. But now something more significant is taking place. Will John hold on to what was significant or will he relinquish hold so that something more important can take place? That is always true in our relational aspect with Jesus. 
There are times when we just need to let go of what we're familiar with, what we're comfortable with, so that something better can happen, something more can happen. And the more we try to hold on to the way things are, we will find ourselves actually limiting the progress of those around us. And you can see this throughout the history of of those who have been Christ followers. I mean, in our recent time and decades, how, how music has changed. There was a time where you would not dare have a guitar or drums in a service. You wouldn't dare. Some places still won't allow it because it was considered, you know, the devil's music or or I don't know what they considered it. But they weren't used to it and so they held on to the piano and the pipe organ or whatever else they were used to, but usually the keyboard in some way. And so that was what they were familiar with. And so this new form of expression didn't take hold and was resisted. When we had, a couple months ago, I had Brian and Boy come out and just do spoken word instead of music for our time of worship. It was very interesting, the response I got. I had some people come up to me, usually those under 30, and say, I really like that. That was so cool. And then I got wind of other responses from those over 30 that said, uh, I didn't really care for it as much. And I thought, how interesting. Here's one group holding on to something. Here's another group really embracing something. And, you know, what would happen if what you were familiar with and what you loved all of a sudden became obsolete. How important is what you're holding on to? Some things we have to hold on to. Some things are vital. You can't let go of. But then there are other things that aren't as necessary, aren't as essential. And so here John has this opportunity. How he responds is going to direct these followers whether they should hang out with him or whether they should move on. And we just read it, so we already know the end of this story. So there's no need reading it again. No, I'm just kidding. We'll read it. So to this end, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. What do you think that means? Keep in context. What's that? What's that? Oh, she's... (laughs) I saw your lips moving, but I can't hear what you say. In context, okay, John's disciples are leaving, going somewhere else, and he says a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. If you're going to grow in an area of spiritual development, you can only grow as much as God is going to give you the ability to grow. And so if I can only get you to this point and you need to grow further, you can only receive what is given from God. In other words, God has to give you more so that you can go to this place. So if I am limited in what I can give you, we require more. God is the one who gives more. And this is important because he is 
really starting to pinpoint, again, who Jesus is. You yourselves can testify, I said, I'm not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. Now, the bridegroom's responsibility was to get married. It was his best man that we would call it now. It is the guy who was waiting on the bridegroom. It was his job to make sure that everything was taken care of. He was there to go and get the bride. He was also there to guard the bride, to make sure no one else would go in. Because remember, this festival lasted for a week, this marriage ceremony. And after the week-long ceremony, the bride would go into the quarters, the tent, wherever they were going to consummate their marriage. She would go in there, and the attendant of the bridegroom would stand and make sure no one else went in. And then when he would hear the bridegroom's voice, he would say, you can go in. And so that's what he's talking about here, how he says he would wait for that voice and then he would smile and say, all right, go ahead. Why? Because you're the one. You, you've been betrothed. You've now fulfilled the ceremony and now you get to go into your wife. You're the only one. I've been here making sure everything is set so that when you came, you could go in. Now, Israel is very familiar with this typology because they have always been referred to as the bride. So, you know, the Lord is coming for his bride. And so they're familiar with this picture. And John is just typifying that so that they understand, I was just here waiting for the one, the bridegroom, Jesus, who in their minds, again, would start, to think the bridegroom, well, if we're the bride, who's the bride? Oh, that would be God. And so that's really where he's going with this. He must, and then verse 30 is just very powerful. He must become greater. I must become less. First of all, notice that it's absolutely necessary. He must become. He must increase. I must become less. Become greater, become less. What does that mean? What do you guys think that means? When, when John is saying, he must become greater, I must become less. What is he talking about? Mm -hmm. Back down from his position. Okay. Right? The humility. Okay, the bridegroom is here, so I need to get out of the way. Okay, the bride's coming. I'm, I'm no longer welcome around here. You know, it's time for me to exit let the bridegroom and the bride have their time because that's my my job is done. Okay, I was here for a purpose. My purpose is over with. Now this purpose has taken over. So I, I need to know when to step down and get out of the way. And again, this is very poignant because there are times when we can hold on to the things that we want to see take place, even though God is wanting to move things further along. And how many times that, does that happen in church circles where maybe a leader or a pastor or someone in authority 
is wanting to control things and then limits what can happen in the lives of other people. And those are things that can be detrimental. You know, when, when someone feels this desire to, to move forward and maybe, you know, go out and, and reach another people or start a, a different work in a different area and they're just feeling like, you know what, I, I really want to take the message of Jesus to this country or to this group of people. But when this person leaves, it's going to leave a hole in the ministry that he's a part of. Well, if you leave, who's going to take care of the children? If you leave, who's going to take care of the books? Or if you leave, who's going to take care of the youth? If you leave, it's going to be detrimental to what's happening here. So I don't want you to leave. And those kinds of things can happen. But if God is wanting to do something, then we must back down and let God proceed through these people. It's really been interesting to me to see how ministries react to people who are involved and then leave or people who, you know, want to uh, be a part of something else Recently, a friend of mine who is involved with another ministry, a pastor, called me and said that he was interested in having someone start to develop at his church in an assistant pastoral kind of way. And the person attended Genesis. And he called, and I appreciate the call. It was courteous. I was going to ask this person what you know, if they would want to do this, what do you think? And, and I appreciate the consideration. And then I told him, well, ask them. It's not up to me. It, it's up to them. If they want to go, they, they can go. People don't belong to me. They, they belong to God. And wherever God wants to move them, I, I don't mind. And there's been times where I've just really tried to hold on to this mentality. I know when I was developing a young adult group, and it was doing pretty well. And we'd get a lot of people. I'd have other pastors call and say, hey, you know, could I get so-and-so to go with me to, you know, we're going to go on this mission trip, and I know they're really talented in this. Is, can I ask them? I'd say, of course. I would hate to hinder anyone. And so people would call me and ask me, and I'd say, yeah, go ahead. But it was real weird if it went the other way. Hey, is so-and-so? Uh, I don't know. And I'd not, phone calls wouldn't get returned. All of a sudden it's like, hey, you know. And you'd think like it's being real possessive, and I just thought that's so interesting. It's a one-way street, apparently. And really what we're supposed to do is relinquish what should happen to what God wants to happen, not what we want to happen. Yes, Lola. Yeah, building other leaders. There is a leadership crisis, really, in the Christian community. There are a lot more people than there are leaders. And if we would develop leaders, we could actually move 
forward in monumental ways as opposed to depending on just specific people. And so what we have done or has become the norm at this time, has been to develop bigger and bigger and bigger, and so you have mega churches. And I'm not saying that those things are bad in and of themselves, but at the early onset of this movement, everyone was a part of the movement. It wasn't just the leaders. Everyone was seen as active. When we went through the book right here, right now, that was the whole point having this missional aspect of discipleship, that everyone is supposed to be involved, that the work of God can increase exponentially if everyone saw that potential. Yes. Right, so Moses was encouraged to extend and give that. There's a great book by Seth Godin called Tribes, We Need You to Lead Us, and it's all about the change that's taking place in our culture that we don't need managers as much as we need leaders. A manager just makes sure everything is getting done, but what's happening is we need people who are innovative, people who are able to take things further and be self-motivated to push things along instead of just manage the status quo. And those businesses that actually do well are those who create leaders and not just have managers to keep everyone where they want them to be. Those companies will be left in the dust for those who are innovated and allow other people to voice how things are going to be done. How many times have maybe you worked in a warehouse and you're doing something and you're thinking, why are we doing this? This is stupid. Why don't they put the baler next to the boxes so that you can just walk right there and get them? Well, that's just how it's done. Management has you know, said this way. Well, that's stupid. But we don't say anything because management says, where if management would listen, hey, you know, Joe in the warehouse says we should move the baler to be closer to this. You know what? That's a good idea. Right, Joe? It's just, you know, that's what's supposed to happen. You hear from the people who know what to do and know how to do it better, and guess what? It's an advantage to the business. Well, in this movement of Jesus, when God is at work in a person, you need to see and recognize that work and allow that work to take place. What would happen if the disciples heard about Paul and said, you know, you're too renegade for us. No, you're not in. And they squashed what Paul was doing in reaching the Gentile world because what he was doing was off the charts from what they were used to. And because they recognized what Jesus was doing in this man, they wanted the work to increase. This work needs to be emphasized. It must be greater than just what we want to take place. And so important lessons for us to learn. You know, John's the Baptist task had been to bring Israel and Jesus together, to arrange the marriage, so to speak, between Christ, the bridegroom, and Israel, the bride. And the task now was completed. He was happy and it was time for him to just fade because his work was done. He wasn't there to try and hold on to this, but to actually relinquish it and let it go. What would happen if in our churches 
we would recognize when God is doing something somewhere else that it would be good to be a part of what he's doing somewhere else and not just try and do everything ourselves. You know, we want our own everything. You know, the reason we are partnering, partnering with the Episcopal Church in Haiti is because they've been there a long, long time. They know what they're doing. They're being effective with the works that they're doing, especially in the area of schools. And so it seemed better to partner with someone who knew what was going on than just try and do our own thing. And go in there blind, just, yeah, we've got zeal, but we don't really know what's going on. What would happen if churches really saw that and would unite together in things that were more effective? What about some of these places that have wonderful buildings that are empty? Every Sunday, 10 people go. And they have room for 200. But they have 10, 15 people. The building's paid for and they're able to keep the lights on. And, you know, maybe the pastor lives on the property on another house. But this has just been going on this way. And then there's this place that is just... I mean, it's just exploding, and they're looking for a place to meet. They're just dying to have a facility. And maybe they have a lot younger people, and younger people don't have money usually, or not as much, and so they don't have the resources that are necessary. What if this place that was really established but just not doing anything would say, you know what, you guys are doing a lot. We're just going to partner with you. What would happen? What's that? There'd be more growth. Yeah, it'd be. And what a, a expression of faith to the world around them. You know, to say, hey, you know, we're with you. This isn't about our name. This is about what God wants to do. And so all our resources, you know, we're going to put them at your disposal so that you can do more with them for the sake of Jesus. Because that's greater. We just need to become less. We'll help you. We'll come and serve alongside of you. That that's just would be a powerful and a wonderful thing to see take place. But it's hard to let go. It's hard to let go. Verse 31, we'll continue. The one who comes from above is above all. Now, this is speaking of Jesus. And these words, again, now are most likely John's, the Beloved's, commentary on what John the Baptist was saying. There's kind of a shift that's taking place here. And so we are to be about Jesus' agenda, not simply our own, because he is above all. The one who comes from above is... Above all, the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. And so he's bringing this kind of picture here that, you know, if someone's from a different country, if they're going to tell you about that different country, well, you'll listen to that one because they know. They've been there. It's one thing to read about or to hear about something. It's another thing to live there. 
And so the person who's from that place can tell you about the place. But if you're from your place, that's all you know. And that's really the distinction that he's making here. The one who is from heaven, he can tell us what God's desire is. Why? Because he's with God. He knows God's agenda because that's where he's from. We were from the earth. Our agenda is our agenda. That's what this kind of concept of this world is talking about. You know, this is what we're familiar with, but Jesus is familiar with more, and so he's making more known to us. Verse 32, he testifies what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The reason no one, well, let me ask you, what is the reason no one's accepting his testimony? Yeah, they don't trust who he's saying who he is. It's unfamiliar with them. You're from a different country. Why are you wearing skirts? You know, it's like that seems weird to us. We're not going to accept kilts. We wear pants, trousers, that kind of thing. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. It's just, it's foreign to them. You're talking to things that aren't in our understanding. And so it's hard to receive this testimony because it's beyond what we're familiar with. And to put it simply, what John is saying is because Jesus alone knows God, he alone can give us the facts about God. And what these facts are, are the gospel. Okay, that is the message that Jesus is coming to give, the gospel, the who Jesus is, why he is here, and what he is going to do. That's foreign to them. And people are having a hard time understanding this gospel. It's not the religion that we're used to. We're used to the traditions. We're used to the ceremonies. You're coming here and trying to bring us into a dynamic and living relationship with God, and it's unfamiliar with us, and it makes us a little uneasy. It's forcing us to be a little more involved, a little bit more real, a little bit more engaged. It's making us more vulnerable. We're having to actually participate in ways that are genuine. We can't just skate through this. We have to actually have to live in relationship with, and that's unusual for us. And so that's why they're not accepting this testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. And that idea certified has given their stamp of approval. You know, if a letter was going out and you approved everything in it, you would put your stamp on it, you know, your signet ring and say, yes, this has my blessing. This has my approval. What this says is true. And, and whoever has accepted this has certified, they've given their stamp that God is truthful. For the one whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit." There was a, a phrase that was very common. The Jewish people themselves would say that the prophet has received from God a, a certain measure of the spirit. You know, when someone was speaking, they have a measure of God's spirit. And so that measure of the spirit was reserved for, you know, the people that God would give that. And now the full measure, 
everything is given to Jesus. And so the Hebrew thought is to have the full measure means you are speaking as if God is speaking. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. John is really echoing what he stated from the beginning. God is speaking. He has the full measure. It's without limit. And then also in Hebrew thought, the spirit of God had two functions. First, the spirit revealed God's truth to men. And the second is the spirit enabled men to recognize and understand that truth when it came to them. So the spirit revealed and then helped people to understand. Listening to Jesus is to listen to the very voice of God. And so the spirit is giving them the ability, the spirit who is without measure. In verse 35, it says the son or the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Again, this is a clear picture in their mind, that of an inheritance. The father has given everything to the son, so the son is now in control of everything that belonged to the father. Again, this is very clear, expressing that Jesus is no less than God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Well, if Jesus is God, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So connecting Jesus to God, you believe in Jesus, you're connected to eternal life. God is eternal. His life is given. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Any thoughts on that? I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on this whole wrath of God thing. Yes. Yeah, Jesus wasn't what they wanted. They wanted deliverance. He wasn't bringing that. And so he definitely wasn't that. And so that could, again, you're not what I want, so I'm going to reject the truth that you offer and submit my own. Um, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We've talked about this quite a bit, and so I don't want to hammer it out too much, the whole eternal life. If you are connected to life, you have life. But if you're separated from life, then you're not going to have the life. But the whole idea of God's wrath remains on them. I I think it's interesting the word remains. It's something that is there because if you're not connected to life, then there is an idea of the wrath. And I've been thinking just in light of some conversations that I've had just about how wrath shows up. Uh, A friend of mine, as I've shared a few times, lost his son, uh, committed suicide earlier this year. And he is writing some of the most brutally honest blogs I've ever read. And they are powerful, and they are poignant, and they're truthful. He talks about being angry with his son. He talks about 
that anger, how it shows up in his life. And I was thinking about the wrath of God because here is this father who is so angry at what his son has done, not only to his family, to himself, but you see, the father recognized, and he talks about it often, all the good things that were in his son. But his son did not see those things. And there's an anger there because he didn't live to the fullness of the life that the father saw that he could live. And so instead of wrath being something about God's going to get you or God is mad at you, maybe that anger is more that of a father whose son has refused to continue living, refused to participate with life. And the wrath is very real. It's powerful. And it comes across in his writings very strong. His anger towards his son, towards circumstances. What if the wrath of God, God's wrath remains on them is that kind of an anger. You know what? I had life for you. Because the scripture tells us he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of repentance. It's God's not pleased with anyone perishing. What if God is that father and we are like those kids who take our own lives because we just refuse to connect to life? And so the wrath that remains isn't God getting us. It's God's anger because we refuse to live. It just a picture that came to my mind and just trying to bring these thoughts to some kind of, you know, clarity. Because he has given us the ability. What are we doing? You know, as this friend talks about his son, he talks about his creativity, he talks about his sense of humor, he talks about his brilliance and all these things, and you just see through the stories he tells of all the potential that was there. And he refused to live in it. And so that wrath is there. Just might be a a way of looking at wrath, maybe not so much in that judge, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to get you because you didn't believe in me, but because I had life for you and you didn't live it. The wrath is there. Just a thought. Any thoughts on this passage or or questions? Well, you know, I I remember where Christianity began, where where faith in Christ began. It, It flourishes in places where people are opposed. To me, the fact that they won't allow us to pray in school really doesn't matter because you can still pray in school. 
you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they can't stop you from praying. They couldn't stop the church from meeting. They can't stop those things. And we don't need the government's power to affirm our belief and presentation. And blaming the government for the lack of prayer, and now earthquakes take place because of these things, well, it actually would be our fault for not praying in the beginning. You see what I'm saying? It's like, well, they're not the ones who determine whether we're connected to God or whether we pray or not. That falls on us. And so if I'm not praying, then, yeah, God's not going to be working. But our faith was born at a place of hostility. China was a place of hostility, and the faith in Christ flourished. There's nothing stopping the work of God taking place except us who believe in God, you know. And I don't think God gets us or, you know, causes bad things to happen because we don't allow prayer in school. Uh, I mean, judgment happens. We've talked about this. You know, the earth is in, in groaning because of basically a broken connection with God as a, a mother and childbirth, the labor pains, we see that. And so there are consequences just because of the fallen condition of mankind that affect all of creation. I mean, let's face it, we we have a hard time breathing or we're maybe getting more diseases because of the smog that's in the air. Whose fault is that? It's ours. You know, it's like that's not God's fault. That, that has to do with all the things that are happening. It doesn't mean that God doesn't bring things about, but I just don't think it's that cut and dry. I don't think we can say, well, government doesn't allow prayer in school or the government's making abortion legal or the government's legalizing homosexuality, therefore God's going to bring this kind of judgment. It didn't stop the early church and all those things were taking place at the beginning. And the church flourished. And God did amazing things. Government isn't responsible for the movement of Jesus. It's those who believe in Jesus taking hold of that and moving it along. Government doesn't have a soul. It's like big business. You know, government does not determine our eternal condition. It can make life good, make bad. They could take too much money. They do. You know, I mean, all those things can take place, but I'm not willing to relinquish the condition of what happens in a country to the government's laws. They don't have the power to stop the work of God if we took it seriously. And if we would take our responsibility of moving forward this movement, living like Jesus did, loving like Jesus did, if we cared enough about the people around us, people would flock to come to know Christ. But because we are so judgmental, because we are so distant, because we have our own agendas and desires that separate us from the things of people, people look at us and say, no, I don't think I'm interested. But the movement of God began in a place much more hostile, much more opposed than our government today. And so to say that the government is causing these things is to relinquish our responsibility, I think. You know, because we can still do a lot. 
countries without the freedoms we have are doing amazing things for God. And so it really falls back on those who believe. At least that's my faith perspective. And I understand where you're coming from. And you know, Pat, there is... We are so used to living a certain way, and especially us who are older, uh, of having the memory of when places would close on Sunday, you know, and when there wouldn't be sports taking place on Sunday because it was a holy day. And we remember those things, and we look back with fondness. Oh, I remember those days. But the reason those days are gone isn't because of the NFL you know, having football on Sundays. The reason those days are gone is because not enough people were involved on Sundays where that became something that, you know, wasn't moneymaker. If no one went, guess what? They wouldn't have football on Sunday, okay? I I like football on Sunday, though. You know, so anyway, the whole idea is if there was no one to support that, it wouldn't happen. But because there were people supporting, that's what gave into that. And so when we look back with that kind of recollection of, oh, those days that have gone by, I remember when things were like that. I remember when the movies, you know, they wouldn't have all those cuss words and those things and these things are happening, you know. Well, the reason things are happening is because we have allowed these things to happen. And so what are we going to do? Are we going to try and make people go back to what we want or are we going to meet people where they're at and connect them to the life that changes them. Because if you try and push people back to what you want, it's like asking me to listen to polka music. It's not going to happen. I like some yodeling. Uh, You know, it's just not going to happen. And I think sometimes that's what's happening. It's like we're trying to force today's generation to listen to polka music because that's the music we loved. And they're saying, sorry, not going to happen. And then we say, well, but that was the right thing to do. And let's pass laws where only accordions can be played in schools, you know. And it's like, it's not going to happen. And if you keep trying to do that, you're going to just keep distancing yourself and distancing yourself from the world around you. I I was, I don't know if I should share this. Um, Yeah, now, now I did. So I was in a conversation with some people. Uh, about my friend who lost his son and some of the things that he writes are just brutally honest. And he doesn't say they're all right. He just tells everyone what he's feeling. And there was a a person who, a Christian, who just started giving him scriptures. The Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this. And then another person chimed in and says, what does that even mean? And I don't know if this other person is a follower of Christ or not, but this person who was spouting out the Bible verses didn't even realize how foreign their language sounded. You know, we who are in the conversation, oh yeah, I know what they mean. When they say not of this world, I I have an idea. But they say, well, you know, we're not to be of this world. And so this other person says, what does that mean? You're in this world. What are you talking about? I really want to know. And then they'd give him some more Bible verses. Well, the Bible, the word of life says this. And then they went on something about mystery of Babylon. I don't know what that was about. You know, but it's like we talk this different language. 
we, we start talking in a way that only we understand, and then we wonder why the world is falling apart around us and why we're having no influence when we're not even talking the same language. And we're talking a language that makes sense to us and we're living in a place that was familiar with us, but things have changed and the gospel needs to move forward, not us get back. Because if... The movement of God, and I know, oh boy, this could cause stir. But if the movement of God would flourish under a socialist nation, would it be worth us being socialists so that the movement of God could take place? Would it be better for that to be greater and us to decrease? I don't want a socialist nation. I don't. That's not my inclination. I don't think that's beneficial. But what if that's where the movement of Christ would take place and take off? Would I try and hold on to my old way, even though this could be... You see, governments are going to rise and they're going to fall. They're going to come and they're going to go. The work of God doesn't care if you're a dictatorship, if you're a communist, a communist if you're a capitalist, if you're socialist... It doesn't care. It it, it cuts through every one of them like it's butter because it cuts to the need of the human soul. And so whatever the political condition and climate is, the gospel message is relevant there. And if we try and hold on to some specifics and we don't see things that are more important, we can find ourselves fighting against the culture that we're trying to reach. Wow, I can't believe I said all that. Whenever there's oppression, the church has always flourished. And so, yes, Lola. Yeah, I mean, technology has changed everything. You know, everyone just about has a, a smartphone. And, you know, so now I've got the World Wide Web at my fingertips. You know, why do I have to memorize everything? I, I can just look it up. You know, why do I have to write in cursive? I don't write at all. You know, it's, I type. You know, it's like, well, no, you need to have good penmanship. Why? It's not relevant to my field or what I'm going to be doing. And if we keep holding people to maintain the things that we have, then other countries start passing us. Why? Because they're connected to the technology that's moving forward, and we're trying to hold on to things from the past. You know, and yeah, I mean, education, gosh, it, it's in the last 20 years, it's changed completely and how people can learn and what's available to us to learn. And if we don't recognize that, then we're following an old model, you know, that was actually put out by, you know, the English years ago, you know, when they had colonies all over the world and they needed to have people think the same way wherever those colonies were and so you taught people the basics and then you shipped them well you didn't do that but you know they would go over to this other place and so now I had someone in a different colony on the other side of the world who could function just like me because they did math like me they did the reading like me they did all these things just like me but yeah 
And so, you know, it's how do I produce myself in these other ways? But now we've got the computer, so now you can do it all online. And now technology has changed the way we can interact. And it changes the way we should interact. When I was in Haiti and I'd go into a classroom that had computers, they'd be on Facebook in Haiti. Yeah, I had some people that wanted to be my friends. I actually have a couple of Haitian friends on Facebook. I don't know what they're saying. It's Creole, you know, and they have that C translation and it never makes sense to me. You know, but yeah, I mean, it's changed everything. So here's a third world country and they've got computers. And and even when we, well, we're really going off tangent, but this is fun. Even when we go to another country, okay, well, let's get them all pens and paper. Why? We don't use pens and paper. Let's get them computers. Let's get them online so that they can connect to the rest of the world. Why do we want to start where we used to be instead of take them where we're going? You know, it's, well, okay, we're going to give them, you know, all these books and things. Well, shouldn't we just jump ahead? It's actually cost less to try and bring the Internet to them than books to them. But I remember books. Oh, I love the smell of a good book. You know, I was talking with the gal who cuts my hair, and we were talking about books to read. And I said, well, don't you have a Kindle yet? And she's like, no, I like books. You know, it's like, okay, you can hang on to your books, you know, but I'm telling you, I know, it does. It feels good, but, you know, if I'm going to get someone, if I'm going to get a classroom in Haiti, 10 books, how much is it going to cost to get them those books as opposed to get them something that they could actually have a pad and just download it? It would actually cost them less to give them the technology to go online than it would to ship all the books to them and start getting them. But we're so conditioned, well, we got to get them to do what we have done, and they're already, we can push them ahead. Why? It just needs to think about these things. So, almost everyone in Haiti has a cell phone. I couldn't believe it. 12-year-old boys with hardly any shoes on cell phones. Why? Because it's a necessity for them to do any kind of transaction or connection. The cell phone became staple, and they're very cheap, and it's a necessity. And so we think of it as a luxury. You need a cell phone, you know, No, it's a luxury. Kids shouldn't have cell phones. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But I'm glad my kids had a cell phone. I was mad at them when they didn't answer, though. Yeah. Isn't that frustrating? Yeah. Just, well, I do. Yeah. Well, then when they don't answer the text, where are you? Anyway, we're really sidetracking. Where's John 3 in this? Anyway. Um. (laughs) The wrath. Yes, Mike. I don't think God works that way. I think the wrath of God, again, is something that happens as we step into areas that we bring upon ourselves more than God's going to throw this. I mean, think about it. When when a tsunami hits, you know, and you say, well, they're, they're all this religion. Well, there are also a lot of children. You know, there are also a lot of innocent people. Is God just going to, you know, throw that at them as well? And it 
begs those kinds of questions if God's going to do those things. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't ever bring judgment on you know, societies and things like that because God is working for a plan too, just like we are. You know, and so God might want to establish something just like we would want to. And he has the right to act and to do, you know, just like we would. And so I don't think that he can't bring judgments and things to a society to shift how he's planning to work. But I don't think it's automatic. Yeah, we do this and therefore this happens. I mean, there's just so many. We 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 are very selective in how we think about those things. And then we discard the things that don't happen. I mean, probably the majority of, abor- of abortions that are taking place are taking place in China, okay? Um, where if you don't have a male child, you're encouraged to have an abortion. If you have one child or have more than one child, you're, you're going to have an abortion. They have forced abortion. I mean, it's taking place... We don't even know to what extent, and yet China is probably one of the fastest growing industrial nations in the world. So you could say, well, God's blessing them. You know what I'm saying? It's like, but now if there was an earthquake, well, it's because they had that. Well, what about when there's an earthquake in, you know, or a tornado in some place in the Bible Belt? They have less abortions, you know, in Kansas than they do in China. Why are there more tornadoes in Kansas than there are in China? I don't know if there are, but I'm guessing there are. Isn't there, you know, it's like, let's be realistic. Let's not just take the select thing and apply it to what we want and supports our belief. And I think we do that a lot. And I think the people outside of faith see those things and they say, wait a second, that doesn't add up. You're being selective. And so when someone does get up on TV and say, yeah, the reason you know for 911 is because we've allowed this to happen. Well, what about this country? They've been allowing this to happen for years. And they haven't had that. Well, again, I, I think there's... Yeah, I, I think, again, part of that is going to be a natural reaction. I think God has given us conduct that if we would act in, it would bring a surplus. I mean, the the... Nations that have followed kind of a Christian moral have always done better. Those who have allowed women to be more um, influential and successful, those countries have all done better. We've seen so many things where those things have been connected to the flourishing of, you know, an economic growth, where if you have a country that's very oppressive, very controlling, then it's going to stifle those things. And so some of those are you reaping what you sow. You know, and I think God has given us a way to live that is always going to help us to live better. And so when we go against those kind of natural progressions that God has instilled in his, you know, ways of doing things, it will have an effect, you know, and it will have a backlash. Um, I think sometimes those won't be seen for a long time, but I think they will be seen, you know, so... Well, again, you know, it, it all comes with how you see. Thank you for the, yeah, the drama there with it. Well, and God is at work. Boy, we're covering a lot here. Um, God, you know, when we say that, you know, we have a freedom to make choices, it doesn't take away God's freedom to make choices. It doesn't take away God's ability to step in and do the things that he wants to do. He, he's not 
absent and he's not relinquished all you know control to do well it's all up to you guys no he's given us freedom but he is still free himself to do the things that he wants in the narrative of the scripture if we don't see god as loving and caring then we will misinterpret everything that takes place because every time that God does something that is, you know, causing war or causing death, then we will look at it as an act of just um, evil, you know, and just without, you know, purpose. But there are things that can be done that can come across evil, but if we don't see the full context, we're misinterpreting it. In other words, if I see someone who gets bit by a poisonous coral snake, and you see me with a machete, for some reason I have one, and I chop off their arm. You know, well, if you see just the me chopping off their arm, you'll think, man, he's got, you know, serious problems. <laughs> serious problems, you know. He's got some rage issues, but if you know the full story, well, they just were bit with a coral snake, chopping off their arm actually saved their life. Now you have a different perspective. You know, and, and so if you don't see the narrative of Scripture as God constantly trying to reach out to mankind and deal with the problems that we create, all you see is the arm getting chopped off, and you don't see the whole picture. And so then, yeah, everything becomes part of that narrative that we're creating in our mind. And I think that's one of the problems that we have. God dealing with Israel was very specific. You know, it was very unique. The United States isn't Israel, and even Israel is not the Israel that was. So it doesn't mean everything that Israel does today is okay because they're Israel. They can do bad things, and we shouldn't support everything just because they're Israel. Yeah, God's still at work with his people, but it doesn't mean everything that government does is okay. You know, And so we need to be careful that we don't just take that and take one view and make that the whole view of everything that we see. And if you take that with the Old Testament and just apply it to everything, well, every time God does something, it's judgment. Every time this happens, it's judgment. Well, you have to take the whole narrative into perspective and see what is God doing? Why is God doing? What was his purpose? His purpose is pointing to Jesus. It was to get to the person of Christ so that the world could be included in the work of God, not so that they would be pushed out. That's why the judgment has come upon them at this time is because I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers a chick, but you would not. And because you would not, this is going to happen. Why? Because you've pushed away life and now you're dealing with the consequences of it. You know, that's taking place in our lives as it did in Israel. If we push God away, we're going to suffer the repercussions individually and then collectively and then nationally. I mean, those things will develop and, and we have to own our responsibility, but it's not the government's fault. Government is made up by people. Government, Rome was toppled by, yeah, from the inside, you know, wasn't the outside. First it corrupted in the inside. Christianity flourished and became the dominant belief when Roman was was persecuting them. How'd that happen? Well, people, they didn't care. They believed. They did what Jesus said, and it had an effect on everyone around them. If we would do the same thing, it would happen with us. And it wouldn't matter if we were in Russia, Afghanistan, 
Syria, China, the United States. If the people would connect to God, it would change the landscape of the world around them. And that's what we're called to do, I believe. It doesn't mean you can't be involved with government. <sighs> okay, no more questions. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, again, the inspiration that prompts us to ask questions and to seek you and to want to know answers and to want to know you and what the reality is of what you want in us and through us. And Lord, I pray that you would inspire our hearts, our minds, our lives to not want to hold on to things that should be made less, but to exalt things that need to be greater. And may we guard our hearts against our own traditions that would hinder your working in the world around us. May we not be the people who want to see things the way they were and it be a detriment to the way things can be. Father, may we have the courage to step out of our comfort zones and engage the world around us in a way that's dynamic, in a way that's powerful, in a way that is holy and apart from partiality and apart from selfishness and pride and arrogance. May we be selfless as you were selfless. May we be pure so that our words resonate with how we live. May we be genuine. Lord, we're not here to compromise. We're not here to make everyone feel better. We're here to challenge the world around us that there is life waiting for them in your son. And if we have the son, we have life. But if we don't believe, then your wrath remains. May we understand that. And may that be fuel for our hearts to try and connect people to your life. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.